You are listening to Inside Healthcare, a podcast presented by NCQA. Hi, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Inside Healthcare. I'm your host, Dave Smolar, Senior Multimedia Specialist here at NCQA. NCQA, the National Committee for Quality Assurance, exists to improve healthcare in America. We want to make care better for everyone. We set expectations of healthcare organizations, measure their performance, and highlight those that do well. And we use science to help us build better health and better choices for all Americans. If you're a fan of this podcast, or if you have feedback for us, write to us at communications at ncqa.org. And we look forward to hearing from you. On this episode of Inside Healthcare, we, we talk Medicaid with a large equity-focused provider. And following that, a chat with one of our PCMH certified content expert quality award winners. Later on, we have some fast facts for you in observance of World Hepatitis Day. But first, I'm proud once again to announce now two more awards for this podcast. The 2023 Digital Health Awards recently announced that Inside Healthcare won an award of merit in the category of audio publications for a not-for-profit with an audience of consumers and health professionals. I'm talking about all of you. Specifically, this award was for our submission of episode 93 from late 2022, which included our interview with Elevance Health Chief Health Equity Officer, their first Chief Health Equity Officer, Dr. Darrell Gray. He gets mentioned later on in this episode, so stay tuned. Inside Healthcare also very proud to be declared a 2023 gold winner by the Hermes Creative Awards in the category of electronic media for the entire podcast series. I should note that with over 6,500 worldwide entries across over 200 categories, only about 22% of the entries for the Hermes Awards are rated as gold winners. NCQA received a gold statuette, a framed certificate, and a listing on the Hermes Awards website that links to this podcast's webpage. So please go on and check out their site. The Hermes Awards is an international competition that recognizes outstanding work for creative professionals involved in the concept, writing, and design of traditional and emerging media. The awards are administered and judged by the Association of Marketing and Communication professionals. Thanks to our de facto executive producer, who's my boss, Assistant Vice President for External Relations at NCQA, Andy Reynolds, for his continued support and for all those who also came before him. And thanks to all of the leadership at NCQA for your continued support of the show. All the best to you. More to come from us. And now, back to our show. As part of the federal government's Families First Coronavirus Response Act, the FFCRA, Medicaid patients would be kept continuously enrolled in programs. But all of that ended at the beginning of 2023 as Congress removed these requirements. Enrollment grew consistently and tremendously, of course, during the pandemic with emergency measures like these in place. Well, now the race is on to help enrollees through the redetermination process, trying to reapply and keep these patients on Medicaid. It's not easy. Providers need more people to reach out to patients and get their forms filled. 
and the health records pile up as companies often struggle to meet digitalization needs altogether, and this specifically. But at the same time, with the increase in data from applicants, it's become even more clear to these companies the health disparities plaguing various underserved populations. To some, this is more than a redetermination process. This is about resolving those gaps, historic gaps, in health equity. So today we talk with Medicaid officers from Elevance Health, a large multi-state health insurance provider headquartered in Indianapolis. They're the largest managed care company in the Blue Cross Blue Shield Association. And even more notable for this show, in September of 2022, an Elevance Health subsidiary, Simply Healthcare Plans of Florida, became one of the first healthcare organizations in the U.S., to earn accreditation in NCQA's Health Equity Accreditation Plus program. This is why we talked with Elevance Health officers in two episodes of 2022. In episode 90, we interviewed Holly Prince, president of Simply Healthcare Plans, Medicaid, at Elevance Health. And in episode 93, as mentioned before, we spoke to their first chief health equity officer, Dr. Daryl Gray. That one was recorded live at our first Health Innovation Summit, held in late 2022. Elevance Health wants to make sure that Medicaid beneficiaries within their purview don't get left behind. In this episode, the third and final show in our series with Elevance Health, we meet the company's Medicaid leaders in an interview recorded in March of 2023. Amy Daly is Medicaid president for Elevance Health, and Kalunde Wambua, is staff vice president for Medicaid Hold Health at Elevance Health, the first person to hold that position. We'll find out more about that development and the company's overall commitment to equity along the way in this discussion. Amy starts us off setting the table for the industry's redetermination challenge. These folks, you know, often come to us at their most vulnerable time, a Medicaid member. They qualify, realize they need care, and they qualify for Medicaid as a result. And so now we're at the precipice of the entire country recertifying, where in the past it was more of a phase, monthly um, uh, uh, occurrence that uh, states would go through based on their individual programs. So what we've been doing, um, as I said, working with those state partners and with CMS is really working to do what I'd call a public service announcement. Every way we can reach a member, Um, through whatever methods we can find them, um, through their providers, through the community organizations that they access, um, through their, where they work and play, just to use use an old, you know, truism of how do we meet the members where they are? We go find them every place we intersect with them um, and help them to understand what their really obligation is to ensure they have coverage. I think it's sort of fundamental to the equity conversation we'll have today, because if you think about all those folks that are so vulnerable and probably don't think about healthcare as their first need, and they still think about food, uh, housing, their financial security is, you know, clearly all those uh, who are Medicaid eligible have financial crises. They're going to think about those things first, and we might not be able to reach them. And that the equity then becomes that sort of, I think of it almost as this this unfortunate cycle. We can't reach them. They don't get recertified. They now lose coverage. Now their health is even less um, impacted by the things that we can do for them. So to me, um, redeterminations and helping those members, which 
I could obviously talk about for a decade because we spend a lot of time on it, helping those members find coverage. And let's be clear, it may not be with Medicaid. It may be with other parts, uh, kinds of coverage that either Elevance Health can offer, or if we don't offer it, we point them somewhere else on the exchange or with their group coverage and, and just educate them, be the partner that we claim to be um, and help them get that coverage because that's what everybody wants. Tell us again about Elevance Health. Just remind us, uh, what's the scope of the company? How many states are you in? Uh, how many companies do you include? How many how many members are covered by uh, the health plans? Sure. So um, one, one I'll say, uh, to, in direct answer to your question, Elevance Health covers um, commercial, uh, Medicare and Medicaid insurance, as well as um, what we call federal government systems, which is contracts for the federal government to help process claims and and provide some services. In the Medicaid space, um, we are in 26 health plans, 25 states, as well as Puerto Rico, um, and cover over 11 million Medicaid members. Um, With the experience of 30 years in the Medicaid program, so I like to think uniquely positioned um, to really impact health equity in, in that breadth. Last year in 2022, uh, NCQA, we launched our health equity accreditation programs. There's health equity accreditation and health equity accreditation plus. Um, and several of your Medicaid health plans achieved the uh, the new uh, HEA, the new health equity accreditation programs. Uh, so why was it important for Elevance Health to pursue this accreditation, especially considering how new it was, sure. even as a pilot? Why was it important for for your company? Yeah, so I'll start and then and also let Kalinda add, um, given her unique position. Um, you know, it was important for I'm going to say two reasons. Um, one, honestly, I think it's it's a almost a moral imperative. Um, we have to do something different to be able to affect healthcare and health outcomes. And if we don't address health equity, we'll never get there, in my opinion. Um, health equity accreditation is a way of partnering with NCQA and being at the forefront to put our money where our mouth is, if you will, or our actions where our mouth is, because we profess and we mean it when we say that we are here to improve the health of humanity. And so those are a lot of really nice words. You have to do something behind it. So health equity accreditation was that first step. And I say that intentionally as well. It's the first step because you actually have to do something. Um, to maintain that accreditation and actually fulfill the promises underneath, um, which is why we have Kalinde and her team and all of the folks. Um, I know you talked about Dr. Gray um, and our social impact team that together will impact health equity. So it, it is, it's, a, it's a personal thing as well as a company a commitment to really serving the members that we are so privileged to serve. Kalinde, anything you would add? Yeah, um- I want to point out that really for Elevance Health, advancing health equity is intentional and it's critical to our strategic approach in Medicaid. And we are prioritizing equity by leveraging data and insights to develop programming that addresses members' physical, behavioral, and social needs. So it's deeply personal. And we want to make sure that we understand 
who our members are. We understand the social drivers in their environments. We understand the communities that they interact with and that we utilize all of that information to address their needs. And back to echoing what Amy said, it's the right thing to do. And it's going to be the best way that we are able to ensure that every person that we serve has an opportunity to be as healthy as possible. Now, what do you do? Now we are for for everybody listening and hopefully in the future, it's March of 2023. So now more or less a year has gone by since the accreditation program uh, started. Uh, People qualified uh, at least a year. How have you used these standards in your health plans, programs and uh, initiatives and in encouraging health plans as well? Absolutely. Um, One of the things that I find really, really exciting is that in alignment with our goals that we create for NCQA health equity standards, we are developing interventions that are specific, time-bound, tied to health outcomes, and and meaningfully drive improvement. So we're not just focusing on the programs that we are implementing in 2022 and 2023, 2023, I apologize, Um, we're, we're taking these principles and we are looking at all of our health interventions with a health equity lens. And so we're making sure that as we look across our different programs and as we are developing interventions, we have the appropriate data and we're looking at social drivers and community relationships. Um, One of the things that I think is really exciting is that for health equity accreditation, we did implement multiple doula programs. And although they were implemented in 2022 and um, early 2023, we're already actually starting to see outcomes. And so as we have been looking at some of our outcomes, we um, we looked at our pilots from California, New York, and Florida, and we found that the programs that we piloted are meaningful and our sense of urgency to scale and do more. Some of the outcomes that we found with our pregnant members that utilize doulas have been fewer inpatient admissions during pregnancy. Um, more like our members are more likely to attend their postnatal visits experience lower odds of cesarean delivery and have lower odds of postpartum depression or anxiety and have overall um, lower costs compared to women not using doulas. I also want to point out that um, in local media, we've been spotlighted in Kentucky for our partnerships with um, three different organizations in which we provided $300,000 in funding to hire and train diverse doulas. And they found that the women that utilized this service actually had better outcomes during their pregnancies. You know, Dave, I think I would punctuate that by what, what, I, what I, think, I think we're doing is a discipline around looking at data to inform whether what we're doing one is addressing the inequity we're seeing, and two is actually creating then those outcomes. I mean, at the end of the day, we have limited resources, limited capacity. Right? That, that's not a uniquely ill events health thing. That, that's the way the financials of healthcare work. You have to focus on what you can do to make a difference. And if you're not looking at the discipline of data to drive those decisions, 
you're going to feel good about what you're doing because you know it's trying, but you won't know whether or not it's actually making a difference unless you have that discipline. So, so I would say that that's the sort of thread that runs through all of our health plans and all of the programs we put in place is you've got to come back and compare against what you thought was going to happen and then pivot and have the the intestinal fortitude to do that because sometimes you're going to have to stop doing something that you really thought was good and it's not actually having the impact. Um, and, and so that, that data-driven element, I think, is really crucial. Elevance has invested in resourcing whole health and health equity directors to make sure that we have a structured approach and strategy and that we are creating a suite of tools that include internal and external views, social data, race and ethnicity, and language that supports the health plans in developing programming. And so, as Amy said, we're looking at the data at the front end to understand what our members need and how to provide them personalized services, but we're also looking at the outcomes. And so we're making sure that we have KPIs that are measurable so that we can assess whether or not our interventions are effective. And again, if they're not, we switch. So Kalunde, tell me again what your title is now, what your title was before at Elvan South. And just for a minute, just tell us what the title means to you. So I am fairly new with Elevance Health. I have been here uh, almost seven months, and my title is Staff Vice President of Medicaid Whole Health. And I'm extremely excited because I've had the opportunity to come to Elevance and develop our Medicaid Whole Health strategy and approach and physically build the organization to ensure that we have representation with within each of our markets and that we are implementing standardized and consistent um, interventions within each market. However, we want to make sure that they're very specific to the needs of our members in those markets. Um, you ask what that means to me personally. I have, uh, I've, I've been in Medicaid for over 25 years in both public and private sectors, respectively. And one of the things that has always struck me is the need to address the whole person. I understand that we can look at somebody through a clinical lens, but we have to understand what their environment is like. And I'll say that is deeply personally to me because I do have an adult daughter that has a disability and her goal is to live independently. She does not want to live with me, although I would love for her to live with me. So working, you know, um, partnering with my daughter as an adult, she needs um, both physical health support, behavioral health support. She needs transportation. She needs a safe and affordable place to live. And she also needs a job that provides her with the ability to support herself. And we also want to make sure that she is, you know, plugged into the community organizations that will help her be the healthiest person that she can be. So it's not just professionally that I am completely passionate and obsessed with making sure that we help people live their best and healthiest lives, but it's also personally. When it comes to equity and when it comes to Elevance Health's drive towards improving equity for, for everybody, providing healthcare equally for everybody and, and getting people to come to the services, uh, there's another big thing that you've done, which was to create a chief 
health equity officer position uh, right. at Elevance Health. And the position is now occupied by your first chief health equity officer, Dr. Daryl Gray, who I had the pleasure to be able to interview uh, for a previous episode. So go back and listen to that one and come back and, and uh, listen to this one as well. Um, so given that, uh, I just wanted to make that as a side note, that's part of the dedication that Elevance <laughs> Health has towards health equity is, is helping to build up this infrastructure within the company to get things done. So health equity isn't just a great idea, it's actually here's what we're doing seriously and structuring ourselves in order to be able to make change. So talk about um, why you believe that Medicaid programs and uh, Medicaid plans are well positioned now to address health inequities. Thank you. Um, I would say that health equity is tied to a macro level issues that healthcare organizations have a role to play in. Essentially, health equity falls within the purview of the health organization when health equity is measurable at an individual level, proximal to healthcare outcomes, and actionable. And with our Medicaid plans, we play a critical role in improving the health of individuals and communities while delivering on the promise of health equity. So part of this is due to the scale and increasing diversity of our member populations. Also, we have the privilege of touching the lives of adults with low incomes, children, individuals who are, are pregnant, individuals with disabilities, and older adults. Um, these populations often have been economically and socially uh, marginalized, and that contributes to the disparate health outcomes that we see in Medicaid. So I believe that we are so uniquely positioned and empowered to work with each of our members to ensure that they are as healthy as possible. You know, if you think about the Medicaid program and its design, it was always about whole health. It's always been about health equity. We just haven't had the same infrastructure and commitment as a program. It's been sort of fundamental to how we work. Now, as we have service coordinators in the field, care managers on the phone are in the field, um, the community organizations that we work with that are part of the web that supports, and, and I would be remiss not to say the provider, all of that community that supports those members, I think we are uniquely positioned in the Medicaid program to probably know more about a member than in other programs. And that does not is not to say in any way that other programs, one, don't need to, or and two, don't want to. And in fact, I think all parts of Elevance Health, I know, are, are reaching to members in a, in a different way. But Medicaid is at the precipice of it because it's part of who we are in caring for these members. And I'll use the same term I did earlier, because we meet them at their most vulnerable and it's by design that we're looking to help them in all parts of their life. I mean, they, some of the stories that I can get from any care coordinator any day of the week about how they've reached out and helped them help the member, not just with getting to the doctor, but helping them find somebody to do um, their the home care in some way, finding a place to live, getting the security and respect around their community that they can get up and go get a job. And then that drives their adherence to medical, um, to medicine for they need, maybe it's a behavioral health medicine, maybe it's diabetes medication. All these things are sort of fundamental to, they're not sort of, they are fundamental to taking care of that member. And so if you think about health equity, we look at, we look at the member's needs through that lens and, and can get to them in a different way. 
It's a very deep goal with health equity yeah. is that the, the provisions, uh, you know, you can put mm-hmm. a, a mobile vaccination van in a neighborhood that is as mobile as it could be with all the, it doesn't matter if people don't come to the services and take advantage That's of right. the services. But once you're able to get them to do that, then a lot of other things start to fall in place, including yeah. uh, being able to do remote care and including people taking advantage and people uh, uh, taking care of themselves in a way that they hadn't been doing so well for two or three years and trusting uh, the, the medical staff well, that, that they can call them if they have a problem instead of and just that calling trust them. Is, uh, is the biggest piece of it. I mean, it, I think what we find is many of our Medicaid members, these the the, the care coordinators, service coordinators, the nurses, the, they're the first people that took an interest in that. They're their person. I mean, in fact, we've got a uh, one care coordinator that tells the story is just like I was their person um, because they didn't mm-hmm. have anybody else. So uh, it, it's it's that trust that you've got to build. Um, and once you've got that trust, there's so many other opportunities to help the individual. How do you know when you've got it? How do you know when you've been successful? What are the what are the metrics that you can use to to measure the success of health equity and, and uh, health equity uh, programming? Um, and you know, on top of that, what outcomes do you hope to see short-term, long-term, um, uh, when do you really expect to see these results start to roll in? This is all about re- being realistic. It, it, right. You know, we're not saying that these programs won't work. Uh, what we want to say, okay, very specifically, as specifically as you can for Elevance Health, um, what, how do these roll out and how did the programs come back to you? Sure. I think that we will know we're successful when we see better health outcomes for our members. We are purposefully being intentional in how we are designing our programs and services to incorporate our health equity lens. And as we design these interventions, we are measuring health outcomes. So if you look at the interventions that we implemented in 2022 and 2023, most of them align with maternal child health. So we know that we're not going to see those outcomes, you know, those measurable results coming in, um, you know, so soon, right? Just realistically. But I think where there's real value is as we're taking our principles and our um, strategy and approach and applying it to all of our Medicaid programs, and we're using that data to identify additional interventions, we're going to consistently start seeing differences in key performance indicators. And all of those key performance indicators have to be health-related outcomes. And so I'm exceptionally excited because I do think it'll take a few months, but I also think, so I think that's one measure of success. I think another measure of success is when I can tell you that we have embedded um, our health equity philosophy and our tools in every aspect of our programs, in every um, intervention that we develop and implement, and and that we have the data to back up our results. So there's 22 out of all the, how many programs are we talking about for uh, Elevance Health Medicaid plans? 26 programs and the other four are on, on the list. We, we uh, just um, logistically there, there were barriers to that. So we're, we're on the list on the, on the path for all, all, all 26 health plans um, and 11 million members. 
And then we can, we don't have to worry about how are you going to integrate HEA into these other, into the remaining four necessarily. Go ahead, Kalinda. I'm sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. I was just, I get so excited. So I wanted to say that in on September 12th, we are starting our HEA accreditation, HEA plus surveys um, for money owned plans. So I'm, this is just really thrilling to me because we were able to get accredited. Now we're focusing on HEA plus and we're focusing on making sure that we're incorporating all of the social um, impact data into the work that we're doing. So I do know that as we are implementing our programs, we are going to start seeing exponential results and we're going to be able to assess those programs see which ones are successful and how we can scale them. And then we're going, the ones that aren't, we're going to quickly pivot because we want to make sure that we are meeting the needs of our members where they're at. So talk to everybody else, everybody else in the United States, outside of Elevance Health, the programs, the uh, um, the plans, the larger providers that have a number of plans or that are covering multiple states, talk to them. The ones who don't have programming towards health equity initiatives uh, on any level, um, what what do you want to say to them? How do you uh, encourage them um, with with your words right now? How would you encourage them to get involved with health equity accreditation programs? Well, one, I think you have to educate yourself and educate your associates, and I think you have to be purposeful in your intentions and strategically plan on how you're going to um, develop and implement your programs. And um, I think that you have to invest time and resources. It's just the reality is we're not going to be, you're not going to be able to be successful if you do not make it a core priority. One, um, you need to. Um, You want an accredited plan in in this day and age, you're missing the boat if you don't focus. But I think more importantly, don't be intimidated. I, I actually probably have said this so many times um, that nobody wants to hear me say it again, but I got pretty impatient um, maybe a year, 18 months ago. I, I'm at the front end of my tenure as the president, been with in Medicaid my entire career, but hadn't, hadn't had this role but for so long. And I wanted impact immediately because that's sort of how we're built, right? We do something, we get action, we get results, we get to the next step because we want we want to see the results of all that hard work. The problem is this isn't something that just jumped up in front of us yesterday that we're suddenly going to leap over, check it off the list and move on. And I think it can be really intimidating. I think it can feel like no matter what you try, you're not going to be able to move that needle. And I think you've got to have that commitment knowing that one, it is hard and sort of doing hard things feels really good when you do them well. Um, but it's also something we can't quit on because it'll mm-hmm. unfortunately be here after I'm gone. And if we can lay the groundwork, if others can lay the groundwork so that the next phase, the next group of people can build upon it. I mean, I think that feels really good and we know we're doing the right thing, um, but it's intimidating. And I think you've got to be committed or or you will fail, and, and we can't have that. That's my interview with officers of Elevance Health, Staff Vice President for Medicaid Whole Health, Kalunde Wambua, and Medicaid President, Amy Daly. 
Everyone, it's time again to focus on the place, the place that inspires and accelerates healthcare quality in America. And that place, NCQA's Health Innovation Summit. For three amazing days in October 2023, the Gaylord Palms Resort and Convention Center in Orlando, Florida will host our annual convention, bringing together leaders from across the healthcare ecosystem, everything you know and care about. The summit will focus on all aspects of quality, including digital solutions, health equity, value-based care, and more. It will feature thought-provoking speakers, one-of-a-kind education opportunities and training, and an exhibit floor showcasing the latest in innovation. So register now. Go to ncqasummit.com for more information. NCQA Patient-Centered Medical Home Recognition, known as PCMH, is like a seal of approval for quality assurance. In fact, it's the most widely adopted program of its kind in the United States. Over 10,000 practices at this point hold PCMH recognition. That's more than 50,000 clinicians under our wing. So it's no surprise that as healthcare companies strived over the years to maintain standards that we've set, some individuals at each organization would become PCMH information hubs, and someone on staff isn't sure how to complete a measure, or you don't know how to fill out a form, you don't know how to prove that you've met NCQA standards, there's usually that one special someone at your company who becomes the PCMH expert. Maybe there's a couple of them, I don't know. But that's the person who probably is the one who then picks up the phone and calls NCQA and chats with us from time to time. That is also the exact kind of person who would want to be, and really should become, a certified content expert. And once a year, we honor some of the best of the NCQA PCMH CCEs with their own QA, Quality Award. In this episode, we chat with one of the 2022 to 2023 winners, the best of the best of the CCEs. Meet Suzanne Campbell, Senior Program Administrator for the Care Transformation Collaborative of Rhode Island, where she supports the Rhode Island Multipayer Primary Care Transformation Quality Improvement Efforts. She's assisted primary care practices with achieving NCQA patient-centered medical home recognition, strengthening team-based care, including nurse care managers, behavioral health, pharmacy, and community health workers, and how to use telehealth to improve care for patients with chronic conditions. Suzanne has a broad range of clinical and administrative expertise in outpatient primary care, home care, long-term care, assisted living care. Suzanne has presented her work at regional and national conferences and became an NCQA PCMH CCE way back in 2014. We talked about the challenges of getting people on board with quality measurement. There are pain points. There are burdens on staff. There's sometimes friction with state and local governments. And everybody listening to the show right now, y'all know what I'm talking about. Suzanne has been on the leading edge of getting ahead of these pain points, helping to smooth things out and break down bureaucracies while encouraging people to see the big picture, the end game. As measurement improves, customer focus improves, and health delivery becomes more efficient, and equity gaps become more apparent, and solutions to disparities become more visible. And in the end, patient-centered healthcare wins the day. Here's my conversation with Suzanne Campbell. 
I became aware of the patient-centered medical home standards while I was working in the hospital because the state of Rhode Island had basically told the hospital (laughs) that they needed to um, have primary care become a patient-centered medical home recognized by NCQA. And so that was the first time I had even heard about um, patient-centered medical home standards um, and NCQA. And I looked at the standards, it was 2008. And that's when they had, you know, level one, level two, level three. And it was really interesting to me. And what resonated with me was that it was, again, just the title, patient-centered. I mean, and so from a clinical point of view, being a nurse myself, um, what better framework to have than have the standards start with the patient? And so I looked at those standards and I tried to, I really tried hard to understand them because it was new. It was looking at things that were really important to me, like access to care, you know, knowing your population, um, how to take a look at which patients might benefit from more um, attention from a, from a nurse, from the clinical team, um, how to do a better job around transitions of care, and how to improve quality. So although I really appreciated the um, drink commission approach, it really resonated with me a lot more Um, to look at things from a patient-centered point of view. And I felt like this could also be really helpful for the clinical team because the clinical team is always going to care about the patient. The clinical team is always going to care about, you know, um, knowing who the patient is so that those those concepts were were great. How have you seen PCMH? change over the years, if you've been involved with the measures since 2008. So what have you seen, you know, just in brief, what have you seen change over the years? It could be various measures that have right. uh, developed, that have appeared. Um, what are some of the things that uh, unexpected that you've seen uh, been added that have benefited uh, your work? For myself, I can just say that the standards were a lot It was a lot in terms of, I remember the first time we were doing this, you know, uploading a lot of documents like, okay, so it was one thing to try to figure out what it all meant. (laughs) There was the the lot of work with like making sure you had all the documents correct, having them uploaded. That was a lot of, you know, just time consuming work. And I appreciate the fact that NCQA has said, like, how do we simplify the approach? How do we simplify the um, renewal process? I think that's been helpful, you know, um, because, because again, as I said in the beginning, it felt overwhelming. And, and that effort that NCQA worked hard on was really helpful. And I think the other thing that I think um, has, uh, that's, that's been very helpful was the um, behavioral health NCQA um, standards and recognition. In Rhode Island, we have embraced the um, um, behavioral health recognition standards, and it's been a very helpful tool and, and framework for people that are really trying to look at integrated behavioral health. And um, that has been really useful. Another change I can remember was health-related social needs and really trying to take a look at 
How do we how do we uh, look at those things that are impacting on people's health? And then how do we build more community connections? I I feel like that's been a useful change, and certainly now the big emphasis on um, improving health equity. Um, that's you know that's been a long time coming in healthcare. And, um, you know, congratulations to NCQA for really embracing that and saying, we need to do a better job on this. And then strengthening some of the um, components to really move the needle. I wanted to ask you about Rhode Island, because I know that even though there are these other projects that you've worked with various teams in various places, tell me first, what work do you do that or how is it that your work uh, is on a state level? I think we're really fortunate in Rhode Island, I would just say this here, (laughs) is that we have the Rhode Island Office of the Health Insurance Commissioner, and that one of the first things that we're one of the one of the states, one of the few states that has um, the Office of the Health Insurance Commissioner. And one of the things that that commissioner did was they said, we are going to invest in primary care. And so um, they created affordability standards. And they required health plans to invest, um, I think it's 10.8% in primary care. Prior to this, the investment in primary care might have been like as low as 5%. And so having health plans say primary care is important, we're going to put revenue in primary care, we're going to invest in primary care, has been, you know, foundational to the work that we've been able to do. So uh, for any state (laughs) that hasn't taken that approach, I would just say you need to be able to do that because it's one thing to say that we have this framework, patient-centered medical home um, standards approach. You also have to pay for it. And so that I think one of the things that in Rhode Island we've been trying to do is really say, this investment is important, it's foundational, and um, health plans are going to help support this effort. And so what happened in Rhode Island by the Office of the Health Insurance Commissioners, they said, is that one of the ways that they were going to also hold primary care accountable. So it's one thing to say, okay, the health plans are going to be held accountable. Primary care is going to be held accountable. And one of the ways primary care was going to be held accountable was that they had to achieve NCQA PCMH recognition. When I started, the practices actually had to do all the work themselves in terms of understanding the standards. So we formed a team of people that were um, practice facilitators. Those practice facilitators also became um, uh, certified by um, uh, NCQA as um, patient-centered medical home content experts. And then we provided practices with some um, hands-on support with understanding what are the standards, how do you meet those standards. And we also formed um, what we what we call a learning community. So we created practice transformation committees, we uh, data uh, and evaluation committee. Um, <laughs> we did some work to say how do we really help the practices learn from each other, and then also do the work themselves. So how do we communicate this to other states? How do we, um, I mean, not we, you, let me ask if you in your office or if, if there, uh, 
ever talking with parallels uh, yeah. at other states and trying to encourage them and and finding out. I mean, it's it's not necessarily your problem to no. have to go and, and solve everything else. And obviously the PCMH standards are there and, and right. some places are set. But, you know, we know that there's some states where there are companies that are dedicated to using standards and, and using our measures. But well, you know, you know, you look at you look at the outcomes. Necessarily. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I would say look at the outcomes because you can see, um, like, say, for instance, there's some states that have done some terrific work. Um, Maryland, as an example. Um, so, if you look at some of the states, Michigan, um, Oregon, like some states that have Washington State, some of the states that are really looking at investing in primary care and really trying to rally um, health plans around investing in primary care, I would just say, look at the outcomes. Vermont, I mean, Vermont has done a terrific job. So so, so states, states are looking at who's doing a good job, where is um, quality of care improving? And I think that if you can take a statewide approach, you're going to be um, that much further along in terms of moving moving the needle. So I w- I would say look at the outcomes, and that's what states are doing right now is they really are saying primary care matters, and it's it's the it's the one area where you're going to see a big difference in um, improving um, healthier lives and chronic indeed chronic disease, um, improving prevention. I'm going to ask you about telehealth and care at home and your experiences with it, especially over the last two, three years during COVID and uh, and even before that. Um, just give me some tips, tips for uh, encouraging and enforcing a, and improving care at home if I'm a, a patient with chronic condition or uh, I'm the caretaker at home, the family member caretaker in Rhode Island, one of the things that they did was they said, okay, let's look ahead. When we um, we were not in a public health emergency, what is it that we want to continue to have in Rhode Island after the public health emergency? And they passed legislation to continue to have, you know, those standards, you know, I, I wouldn't call it relaxed, <laughs> but that all health plans had to do a certain thing. It makes it much easier in primary care if you don't have different health plans doing different things. And and then you've got your population that you're trying to take care of. So there are risk-based contracts um, that, you know, again, if you're capitated in terms of how you get paid in primary care, it's going to be much easier to implement some of those things. Um, Right now, Medicaid doesn't pay for remote patient monitoring at all. So, you know, I I think that those are the things that if you really want to do something, you need to figure out how to make it easier for primary care to do that work. And then you either need to pay for it in terms of a capitated contract, or you need to pay for it so that people will do the work that they really do want to do. We were really fortunate in um, Rhode Island. Again, we have health plans that um, that approached the Care Transformation Collaborative of Rhode Island, and they said, we would like you to help primary care practices improve telehealth. They gave us money. We gave the money to the practices. And then because we have a learning community, we, we, we developed what we call the call for applications. We got practices to, um, 
people that wanted to do it. They entered the learning collaborative that we created. And then we gave them money to try piloting and doing the work. And they did a great job. Again, I would say <laughs> there is a lot of talent in primary care. There's There are people that want to do this work. And that if we can make it easier for them to do the work and pay them for it, um, you'll see a lot of progress. People will do the work. Give me a picture of what you think uh, things will be like in healthcare in the U.S., whether it's in a city or in the burbs or remotely in rural areas. What do you think, because of PCMH and, and, and the other kinds of work that you've touched on, what do you think things are going to be like 10 years from now? I'd like to build on what we already have as the foundation. Um, I, I think PCMH is a foundation. Um, I think we need to build on the payment system. I think the other place that we could do some more work, I, I mean, obviously, the looking at health disparities, like let's look at where there are gaps and who's not getting the care that needs to get that care. And then let's let's drive that home. Let's see what we can do to incentivize people to say, you know, there's there's gaps in care here. We can do a better job. I think the other area that we have a big opportunity around is looking at primary care, working with the community, you know, community-based organizations. I think, again, to what extent can we make that happen? And to what extent can we build, you know, clinical community linkages to improve care. I'd love to see more investment in maternal child health. Um, right now, the way the system is built is that if you have risk-based contracts, you're really looking at the more expensive older population. I would love to see more emphasis on maternal child health. And based on the way we're presently structured, we're risk-based contracts, you know, in some ways, force people to take more uh, emphasis on the, the more expensive population. We need to change that around. We need to put more emphasis on maternal child health. There goes Suzanne Campbell, Senior Program Administrator for the Care Transformation Collaborative of Rhode Island and 2022-2023 winner of NCQA's Patient-Centered Medical Home Certified Content Expert Quality Award. Interested in becoming a CCE? Click on any of the links in the part of the episode's description or go to ncqa.org and type PCMHCCE in the search box on the top right. Oh, and if you're a CCE already, remember certification needs to be renewed every two years. So feel free to call us or email us if you need anything. Time again now for our Fast Facts segment of the show. I'll provide you with important information related to a monthly national health observance, and you'll hopefully spread the word to colleagues and friends. It's July now, and each year on July 28th, the World Health Organization observes World Hepatitis Day. And so let's talk about it. World Hepatitis Day is run by the World Health Organization, one of seven global public health days they mandate each year. The U.S. Department of Health and Human Services offers numerous resources that you can use to educate folks on hepatitis prevention and immunization. Here's some quick facts regarding the five basic types of hepatitis. 
This info comes from both HHS and an article from the NIH. Links to all of this will be in the episode's description. First off, hepatitis is a virus. The five types usually discussed are labeled as hepatitis A through E. The differences between them include how they're spread as well as their level of lethality, and you really cannot catch it by shaking someone's hand. You do get it by somehow ingesting a bodily fluid or product from an infected person into your own body. Hep A, HAV, hepatitis A virus, is transmitted through contact with feces. Among other situations, exposure could happen from drinking contaminated water or some poorly cooked meats. Hep B, HBV, is spread through bodily fluids, either by sexual contact or in utero from parent to child. Hep C, HCV, is mostly spread through contact with infected blood, including those sharing needles. Hep D and Hep E aren't discussed as readily. Hep D only occurs in folks already suffering from and infected with Hep B. And Hep E is transmitted similarly to Type A, though cases are relatively rare compared to the other types. But then again, this is the WHO, they're talking about this globally, it's much easier to spread something to a larger population through food or water supply contamination. So Hep E is a common cause of outbreaks in developing countries. So what are the symptoms? Well, hepatitis attacks the liver, so symptoms are similar to just about anything that happens wrong with your liver. They include dark urine, extreme nausea, vomiting, fatigue, abdominal pain, You might even get symptoms of jaundice with your skin, your eyes turning yellowish. Then again, you could live for years after exposure, but with no real outward symptoms. And yet the whole time, your liver might be weakening from the virus. And by the time you're diagnosed and you find out, the damage is already done, and you might even have to be on the road to finding a new liver. In this case, prevention can mean vigilance. Don't expose yourself intimately to anybody who might have any kind of hepatitis. Cook your food and heat water supplies sufficiently as required. And if you're already immunosuppressed, be extra careful, especially if you already have one type of hepatitis. Don't share needles. Stay healthy. Communicate with family and partners about your health and about their health, especially if one of you traveled extensively outside the U.S. recently. And before all of that, get vaccinated and get tested. Infants, of course, are at risk for hepatitis. This is one reason why NCQA includes a measure in our HEDIS measures called Childhood Immunization Status, or CIS. This measure calculates the rates for a number of childhood vaccines and vaccine combinations that are often given. And among the vaccines in the list alongside the DTaP and MMR and flu vaccine are vaccines for both Hep A and Hep B. As we do on each episode of Inside Healthcare, we ask you now for your thoughts on today's show. Email us at communications at ncqa.org anytime and be sure to include Inside Healthcare in the subject line. Now, if you're coming up empty for something to say, here's our question for this episode. What's one thing a patient can do to get ahead of redetermination. Think about it and then tell us about it. And if you have any other comment, a suggestion, an idea for a guest on the show, maybe you wanna be a guest on the show, that's great. Just email us and let us know. 
communications at ncqa.org. And be sure to write Inside Healthcare in the subject line of your email. Hope to hear from you soon. And that's it for episode 109 of NCQA's Inside Healthcare podcast. Thanks again for joining us. This episode's done, but there are plenty that came before it for you to explore and investigate. And you can find us at blog.ncqa.org or find us on any Apple or Google streaming app. Whether you download the show, whether you stream it, if you find us, then follow us and spread the word. Help us build our audience by letting others know about NCQA's work. If you haven't done so already, connect with NCQA on LinkedIn and Twitter, and you'll get promos for this show to share with your friends and family. And as always, we thank you, our loyal listener, for helping our audience continue to grow. On behalf of our award-winning NCQA communications team, I'm Dave Smolar. We'll see you again, no doubt. You've been listening to Inside Healthcare, a podcast brought to you by NCQA the National Committee for Quality Assurance. Inside Healthcare is available on your computer or mobile device through Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and on our blog at blog.ncqa.org forward slash podcast. <laughs>